The Lord is risen. Oh, we got to say it so they can hear us all the way in Nottingham and at the Uni Lincoln University. The Lord is risen. You know, most faiths cannot be reduced to a bumper sticker, but Christianity can. It's that simple. Christ is risen. This is the greatest day in history. This is the day that changes everything. This is the only time when a dead person walked out of the tomb, defeating death. And on that first Easter morning, it did not dawn on the disciples quickly. You would have thought they would have gotten it, uh, but it did not come to them quickly. Uh, the, the women were the first ones who got it. That's really not surprising to us men. Um, Jesus really related well to women. Uh, people think it's because, uh, you know, he, he knew their life. Uh, he knew what it was like to feed 5,000 people who showed up when there was no food in the place. Uh, he knew what it was like to spend his entire life trying to get a bunch of things through to a bunch of men who just never got it. Uh, and he knew what it was like that even when he was dead, having to get up because there was a lot of work to be done, right? <laughs> so he could relate to women, and the women were the first ones that got it. And, and the women came, uh, you know, when the church was reduced to one person on Easter morning, you had one person, Mary Magdalene, saying, I've seen, I've seen the Lord. Um, but verse 12 of Luke 24 says that the men thought the women were talking nonsense. Um, they did not get it. And we're going to come to the place where Jesus takes the initiative with his disciples uh, and he ministers to them from the scriptures as that third kind of guest in disguise uh, that comes to them on the Emmaus Road. Uh, and so I'm going to read to you from this account. This is the word of God. These, this is the testimony that has established billions and billions of people's faith because it is unassailable and powerfully true. And so I invite you, if you're able to, to stand out of reverence for the word of God as I read to you this inspired and perfect account. Now on the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe 
all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. May God bless this, the reading of his infallible word. Please be seated. This was the day that changed all history. It's the greatest, happiest day in all history. Uh, everything we believe is bogus apart from this day. If Christ did not physically walk out of that tomb so that you could shake his hand, touch his body, and, and see him physically raised, then toss your Bibles into the trash can. This is what our whole faith rises or falls upon, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is the happiest day. It is not a mere metaphor. I heard metaphor preaching when I was growing up. You know, oh, it's like the spring and the flowers. No, 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 no. The spring and the flowers happen annually. <laughs> this had never happened before. This is a dead body. The Pulitzer Prize novelist John Updike puts it this way. He says that if, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, if the molecules did not re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. That same valved heart that was pierced, died, withered, it paused and then it regathered and he emerged resurrected. On that basis, the entire Bible stands or falls. And this is the greatest attested fact in all of history and it is going to be confessed and celebrated today by billions and billions of people. In fact, a great part of them have already celebrated today the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But for these two who were disciples, which meant they were students and followers of Jesus, probably part of the 70. And I wanna just say, on Easter Sunday, if you were counting numbers for the church, again, the church had gone from maybe, you know, 70 frightened disciples plus the 12 who were scattered everywhere to, to just a tiny little band that were doing homage to a dead savior. They thought the happiest day was the saddest day. For them, the only innocent, the best person who had ever lived had been eradicated in the most humiliating way. They thought this was the saddest day because evil powers, Pilate was more in power and pompous in his power than he had ever been before. The corrupt Sanhedrin, 
who had given Jesus that mockery of a trial, they had consolidated their power. Caiaphas and Annas and, and the mocking crowds were more scornful than ever and all of the evil powers and all that deadens and, and harms our world thought that they had won. And so they are walking in dashed hopes and in ultimate sadness. And they're, they're walking a road that we know. Uh, you, can, you can map it, it's the Emmaus Road. It's, it is uh, really, literally about a seven mile straight journey, but if you follow the roads, the highways, you can get there. Here's what it looks like. You can take a spiritual pilgrimage there. Here's a little cheerier picture of the Emmaus Road. You actually can walk it from Jerusalem uh, and it is, as scripture says, uh, that seven mile hike. And it's in the midst of this road that on the happiest day in all of history, I think some of the saddest words are said. And these are the words we had hoped. Have you ever said those words? Have you ever said, I had hope? It's in verse 21, if you want to put it up there. We had hoped. The death of hope. Um, saddest words. Sometimes our hopes are because we have lost hope in ourselves. I mean, man, I, I can relate to that. If I'm, if I'm banking on my own abilities and my own hope, I mean, aren't there just times where we are just so tired of ourselves? I mean, I, I think even, even after all these years of walking to Christ, I'm so glad the gospel message does not call me to place hope in myself. I'm so glad that the gospel does not call me to accomplish a few things, like the, like the gospel has this screen door, and it's like, Bob, if you don't get things right, the gospel's gonna screen you out because it's gotta screen out whatever is not a, walking in accord. I'm so glad, the Bible does not say the Bible that the gospel has a screen door, it's an open door. It's not even a swinging door. It's, it's Jesus says, I am the door. Uh, because uh, and, and, and it's not a narrow door. Sometimes people mess it up and they think that the way of the gospel is a straight and narrow uh, door. No, it's a straight and narrow way. But at the end of that straight and narrow way that none of us can stay on because we blow it, we relapse, um, we, we get triggered by all kinds of our hurts and hangups back to the worst version of ourselves. Um, the gospel is this great, wide, expansive door based on Jesus' all-conquering victory because he did for us what we can't do. He conquered sin. He paid the price for sin perfectly. And when death sunk its fangs into Jesus, it sunk its fangs into what it had never encountered before, perfect innocence. And, and so Jesus fully vanquished our sin. And so sometimes we say, I had hoped that I... And if, if you are, are stuck in that this morning, I want you to see how this liberates you from having to focus your hope on what you can do. You can say, I had hoped that I would have been a different person. I would have hoped that I had not been subject to the same hurts or the same habits or the same hangups in life. I had hoped that I would have, you know, married the guy or the girl, um, gotten the promotion, built this life or whatever. And uh, that is a sadness that is deep and staggering. But that is not where they stood. They were not standing in the, the you know, when we say, I had hoped that I, 
it lands us in a place of shame, self-rejection, um, locked in to disappointment. And that is one form of deep sadness that Jesus' earthquake, powerful resurrection lifts us out of. But sometimes our disappointment is in others. And we say, I had hoped that they, have you ever been there? Uh, and when we say, I had hoped that others, or I had hoped that they, it doesn't so much focus us in on shame and, and self-scolding and hating ourselves, but it leads us into bitterness, cynicism, uh, and dejection about other people. Sometimes it actually is even disappointment in church. I can tell you, I'm not here to defend church as a perfect paragon place. Uh, I have been very aware of the disappointment that church can bring. I believe with the quote of Nadia Boltz Weber who says this, she says, people don't leave Christianity because they stop believing in the teachings of Jesus. People leave Christianity because they believe in the teachings of Jesus so much they can't stomach being part of an institution that claims to be about that and clearly isn't. And there are many people who, who they're, they're locked in that, and that can divert us away from Jesus and lead us to a kind of cynicism and disappointment. I, I've, I grabbed some references from people who are talking about this. Um, they said, we had hoped that church would be a place of real spirituality and not another just corporate-minded institution. Or we had hoped that uh, those who were leaders in the church would be who they taught us to be. Or we would hope that our church would empathetically work for racial reconciliation, but we find it choosing denial, defensiveness, and fear. Or we had hoped that the people who introduced us to Jesus wouldn't be deceived by conspiracy theories or uh, fusing Christian nationalism into the gospel. Or we had hoped that when we came forward with our story of being abused inside the church that we would have been believed instead of re-traumatized and even blamed for what we'd experienced. All those things are serious. But all of those things are ultimately not a description of Jesus, but of his failed followers. And if there's anything we see on Easter morning is that the followers are a mess. The confidence of Easter is not in the followers of Jesus. And, and, and if you have been disillusioned by the followers of Jesus, there's an old uh, Keith Green song that says, if you've been burned, here's what I've learned. The Lord's not the one to blame. He's the one who's come to enter into this mechs to love us through us and to land us in a different place. And so it's a sad thing when you say we had hoped that they, or when you say that we had hoped that I. But you know what makes their words the saddest is that it isn't I had hoped that I or we had hoped that they but it's we had hoped that he we had hoped that God we had hoped that God would be different we had hoped that Jesus who came and we were placing our trust in him as the, as the Messiah we had hoped that Jesus would be different than what we have discovered him to be they're not just sad about themselves or other people. They are sad because Jesus has utterly failed them and they are losing faith in Jesus. And it is good and necessary for us to interrogate, to put on the stand our expectations and hopes in Jesus and say, 
Has he failed to live up to his promises or have I simply projected something onto him that he never promised me to be realized right now? And sometimes we're like the disciples who expected one type of Messiah and we got the crucified lamb in our place instead. We got the one who came who was despised and rejected and we esteemed him smitten, stricken by God and afflicted by God. And some of us have had our certainties absolutely blown to hell because we've sought to walk with Jesus and it's turned out that it seems like Jesus is the one who lit the match on our expectations and blew them up. And what are we left with? Because it certainly didn't feel like redemption. In this very sad sentence, there's one of the happiest words, redemption. You know what it means? It means to buy back from horrible brokenness. And it says that we had thought that Jesus had come into this brokenness. We saw him reverse leprosy. Nobody had ever done that. We saw him reverse congenital blindness. We saw him take people who literally had stopped breathing and had died and resuscitate them back to this life and to health. We saw him raise a widow's only son. We saw him do all of those things. We thought somehow, even when he was in the grip of Pilate, even after he'd been scourged somehow, you know, he would talk himself out of this. He would extricate himself from this. He would make the storm of all this opposition cease and he didn't and it's been three days and no Jesus and we don't have what we thought God had promised us in God's timing. That's what they've come to. And they are walking in the saddest way. They must, this seven mile journey, which maybe would have taken a couple and a half hours, it must have taken even longer as they are just dejected and downcast in their spirits and Jesus comes to them and he hears their journey and can you imagine what it was like to hear Jesus for Jesus to hear them blame him for the crucifixion <laughs> can you imagine as, as he patiently though comes to them and they are basically blaming him for the suffering narrative that he took on and saying, we had hope that God would redeem, but there is no redemption in this when actually the only thing that could be done, the only thing that has ever been done to redeem our broken world was exactly what Jesus was being blamed for. They were in essence saying that because he had been betrayed and handed over, we can't believe in him as the Messiah. You know, it's kind of like saying we reject our expectations of Jesus have been blown up. We can't hold them anymore because of Judas or Peter or the scattering of the disciples or how evil has arrayed itself against him. And Jesus pursues them and he draws them out and he does not short circuit their disappointments, but he hears them out and then he begins to open up the scriptures to them. And in the scriptures, what he does is he brings them to a different narrative of the Bible than a hope that was about them somehow being restored, but it's about Jesus coming into the brokenness and dying this death that upends evil and brokenness in the world. I'm struck by the, by the fact that in these verses, in verses 23 through 25, where he says he began with Moses and all of the prophets and to show them um, that from the scriptures that he was the Christ, that he's showing them the entire Bible. You know, it was Einstein who as a Jew said, when he read the gospels, he says, 
I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. He says, when I read the Gospels, Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrase mongers. No man can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. That was Einstein who said that about the Gospels. But Jesus here says, no, it's not just the Gospels, which they didn't even have written yet. <laughs> but he says it's the whole Bible. When you understand it, you understand that the subject matter is Jesus. When you read about Adam and the failures in the garden, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in a different garden and whose obedience is credited to us. Or when you hear about the first broken fratricide in the Bible, brother killed, Cain killing Abel, the Bible tells us Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain, whose blood now cries out, not of condemnation, but for our acquittal. Or when you read about Abraham in the Bible and his failures, um, you read that Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all that was comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing where he was going but to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands into the gap between us and the promised land and mediates a whole new covenant based on grace. Jesus is the real rock of Moses. He's the real Passover lamb. He's innocent, perfect, helpless, and slain so that the angel of death passes over us. Jesus is the true temple, the true prophet. He's not just a prophet pointing the way to God, but he's God to whom all of the prophets point. He's saying all of this in the Bible rightly understood is not giving you more expectations and instructions to follow. How many came here saying, I hope the pastor gives me some more instructions and expectations for me to line up to? No, no, the Bible is about how God has actually met all of those expectations through Jesus. He's come to lift the burden off of you. That's why I can say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus is the one, and that's why for all of the things that may disillusion us, the one thing we can hold on to is Jesus, have you exchanged your story for his story? Have you exchanged a story, a, a beautiful redemption? Jesus invites us into the Bible as a story that is bigger than ourselves, bigger than our culture, bigger than our imaginations, and we get to be in on it, not by performing something, but to, to get in on the coattails of the one who performed it perfectly. It's it's not the Bible that says, do this and you will live. The, uh, do this and you will get God to love you. That's religion. That's not the message of the Bible. Religion is about us trying to carve out and seek and earn a relationship with God. The Bible is about the God who would swim through oceans of wrath and opposition to save us. He's coming after us. He's on this Emmaus road. He's coming after these disciples. And, he, and he's saying, I am the storyline. I am the one in all of the Bible. And it's, it's at, a, at a key moment when they say, well, we're gonna camp here for the night because I'm gonna go on and go, no, please stay with us. And Jesus comes to them and he does something before them. Um, he brings out the bread. And it says, he, as he took the bread and he broke it. It was at that moment that he was disclosed to them in the breaking of the bread. And then, it's not exactly described, but it's like he just, it's gone. And what they, what they note and they remember is, 
That was the upper room. That was when Jesus, instead of serving lamb and saying this points to the Passover lamb whose blood spared all of us when we were in Egypt, Jesus says, no, this is my body. Then the penny dropped and they understood when he hung between heaven and earth on that cross, he was hanging there to unite me in all of my earthiness to a God from heaven. And, and it was at that point that their faith was lifted, their disappointment was gone, and they realized for the entire time that Jesus was talking to them about the scriptures, they said, our hearts were burning within us. Spiritual reality was coming home to us because we were seeing it come to us through Jesus. I, I wish we had the text to those sermons. That was, must have been the greatest Easter sermon absolutely ever given from the scriptures, opening them up and saying, this is a book that is about me. This is a book about what I have come to do for you. This is a book about salvation, not through your self-effort and your earnings and deservings, or you're somehow never having a relapse. That's not gonna happen, folks. This is not about us having a life that is picture pure, but it is about a redemption that comes in and gets into all of the worst broken places in life and is able to bring a redemption story because the story ultimately is about our heroic bridegroom, Jesus. It is not about us. I love what one writer said. They said the, 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 the biggest lie that they were tempted to believe was that life is a story about me. And I would just counter that with also saying the biggest lie that people believe in the Bible is that the Bible is somehow God delivering a bunch of commands and expectations for us. We already have enough in our own conscience that we can't live up with. I, I, I can't live up to the things I just see other good people do and say, wow, I should do that. I don't need a Bible to feel worse about myself. That's not why it's come. It's come ultimately though to show us that God agrees with those expectations he loves us through our not meeting them and he has sent somebody who is the answer to all of that. And so on Emmaus, he comes toward them and I want you to see the one who comes toward them is the one who suffered the worst suffering in all history, who in an unthinkable moment had all of the sin and pollutions of the world. We can't even imagine what it was like laid upon him with all of the mockery and suffering and he's the one now who sidles up to them, pursuing them on the road. And I wonder, have you recognized how Jesus has come to you and, and he's, he's calling you to place faith in, in what he has done. And he can bring redemption. He can bring hope out of the most broken, broken, broken situations. I've been struck just in these last weeks by these, these horrific school shootings. And one of them happened in Nashville that we have some, some secondhand connections with and that just reverberate in our lives. And there were three nine-year-olds, three devoted administrators and this was the administrator, the woman, Catherine Kuntz, who police say intervened and saved many lives because she got in the between uh, the person bringing the AR-15 into that school and sought to give time for them to lock down these classrooms. And I heard that her husband, this picture of Catherine and Dick Kuntz, her husband spoke at her memorial service. And you think, you know, I don't know, you may have had some really awful, horrible, difficult losses, but imagine the loss of these kind of families 
on a day that was no different than any other, they fought in the morning, and then this violent, cruel act takes place. And I, I want to read to you what he said at her funeral. He said, Catherine would be embarrassed if um, our admiration of her distracted from other wounded households. She was a champion for others and among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, burdened by shame. Therefore, honoring Catherine compels us to remember a seventh family, equally wounded in the loss of someone dear to them. And we count on the Lord and our community to support them generously, extravagantly, and to offer them the hope that sustains. And we are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. He's saying the redemption of Jesus is so big that we cannot honor it unless we recognize that it also is reaching out to those who who perpetrate the worst acts of violence. Let me tell you, it brought a hush and expanded the sympathy of the crowd like the power of Jesus is able to do. And while we, are, we marvel, I admire it, I'm gonna tell you one thing I have had as a pastor is I know that the power of Jesus' resurrection, and this is a, a portrayal because nobody was actually there, but the portrayal of uh, the power of Jesus' resurrection that came into dead spaces and, and with that power caused a dead corpse heart to begin beating and rise up from this tomb, that there is no place so low that the power of that resurrection cannot come. And you know why I know that? Because I've been a pastor for 35 years and I've walked through some really tragic situations. And you know what I have found? Uh, not before those moments come to people, but people who know Jesus, when they go through those moments, what they find is that Jesus is absolutely a match for that hopeless situation. They either find it in that moment, sometimes, or they don't find it in that moment, but they hang on to Jesus, and they find that he brings them out of a hopeless situation and brings hope into a place where they thought there was no hope to be found. I'm gonna invite you to give just a silent testimony. If you are a person who is a believer in Christ, have ever come into a situation yourself where you just thought there was absolutely no hope to be found in it, some tragedy that came to your door and hit you in a way that seemed like a knockout punch and somehow, in that moment or down the road from that moment, you found the power of Jesus coming into that brokenness and you were able to rise again. I'm gonna invite you to give a silent testimony and just stand right where you are. Oh, I think the Lord is so honored by this. My friends, all of these are witnesses that join the apostles who were martyred, who were slayed, but they could not deny. All they had to do is say, hey, we were just kidding about Jesus. And they said, okay, you're out of the cell. You go live your life. They said, no, no, we cannot deny. Slay me. And we cannot deny what we have come to know. My friends, Jesus' grace, Jesus' power, Jesus' life comes into the most broken, broken places. Do you know it this morning?
Thank you for preaching those messages. You can be seated. Do you know it this morning? Because this is his burden. His burden is to disclose himself to us as the broken one who makes all things new. He wants to bring the very headline to the story of your life and mine, and he wants to give us a hope that is greater than the heartache. Without Jesus, all of us are moving toward a hopeless end. But if we will embrace him, he invites us to have what our hearts have been created for, endless hope. It really is ours to choose. How can we not ransack the Bible at least to say, is this thing true when we know we're faced with a hopeless end or we can have endless hope through Jesus? Brilliant, the most brilliant minds have found this to suffice for all of their doubts. I love this quote by Dostoevsky and Brothers Karamazov. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all of the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed that will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has been happened. You know who he's writing about? Jesus. He's writing about Jesus. He's writing about the fact that if you're a believer this morning, you can say, the worst thing that can happen to me. And most of our minds go to death. The worst thing that can happen to me, death. We say, come on, death. You can reach out your hands to strangle me. It can be an oncoming car. It can be a weakness in a vein or artery. And I can be taken out of this world, no longer breathing the air of this planet. But instead of breaking me, death, if you do that, you will make me. You won't break me. Because the worst thing that can happen to a person who is in Christ is ultimately the best thing. The worst thing that can happen, you can die. Jesus says, ha ha, where of death is your victory? Where is your sting? He mocks it. I love it. Because it just means that through death, you are gonna be more alive than you've ever been and there will be more power and glory in your life than ever. Death becomes for the believer just a gateway to the greatest ballroom party we could ever imagine and it doesn't have an end. Yes, this is the hope of Jesus. And the entrance of this life, it's not about you. It's not about you obeying the commandments, fulfilling the commandments, anything. If anything, it's about you coming to the place where you have nothing to offer and you yield your life up to the one who has done it all. That's what it means. It means that upon a life you did not live and upon a death you did not die, you stake your entire eternity. And if you are willing to do that, that is the passageway into a Christian faith. And the moment you do that, you are locked into this destiny. 
And that is really why CLC family exists. We are about seeing destinies changed one by one until more and more of us join that group of treasured people that will be part for all eternity saying, worthy is Jesus who was slain for us to receive honor and power and glory forever and ever and ever. My friends, heaven has been described. It is not this ephemeral place where we're playing a stringed instrument on a cloud in a, in a kind of Casper the friendly ghost spirit environment. No, we are going to enjoy physicality like we have never enjoyed it because Jesus' body got up and he's renewing this world. We're coming to the place, as one poet said, the, the blind will see a bird on wing, the dumb can lift their voice and sing, the diabetic eats at will, the coronary runs uphill, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear, the cancer-ridden bone is clear, arthritic joints are life and free, and every pain has ceased to be, and every sorrow deep within, and every trace of lingering sin is gone. Amen. And there's nothing left but joy. And he has done it for us. So how can we suppress the desire to confess and share this hope and to embrace it and walk across that line? Folks, I want to invite you. Again, if you, if you have placed your faith in Christ and even this morning to confess that faith with us as we close out this service, we are going to dance our way out of here. And I want them to hear this all the way through all of Chester County and Maryland and Delaware. We got three states to witness to right here. And I'm gonna invite you with billions of people over this weekend are gonna take these words that confess the resurrection of Christ upon their lips. And if, if this is yours, if this is your faith, I'm gonna invite you to stand and boldly confess it. If, if you're not at that point, or maybe you've come here heard, and you just need to hear some other people confess it, I'm gonna give you permission to opt out and just say, I'm gonna just listen. I'm gonna just take this in. But I'm going to invite you to confess what began in the very, very early centuries of the church as the summary of the Christian faith. And if you want to rise to your feet, I'm going to ask you to confess down through the centuries what it means to believe in the resurrection of the body and the whole storyline of the Christian faith. And then we are going to rock it out of here singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. So believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
one more time. The Lord is risen. And make this a feast day. Have that second piece of cheesecake. <laughs> Jesus resurrected for us. We can enjoy all the good things. There is so much more to come. Lift up your hearts and receive this benediction. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To him be the glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. amen.